Well, it's been, I think, at least a month. We are working our way through Nehemiah, and I do intend to pay attention to it this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you, and I invite you to open it to Nehemiah chapter 5. As is pretty typical during a, a holiday season, we get interrupted and we, I preach some messages that don't necessarily fit in with where we're going, but I want to make a return to you because my overarching purpose with preaching, uh, I believe what God has called me to is to preach exegetically through scriptures, and so I want to do that as much as I can. I do deviate, as you know, sometimes into topical kinds of things, but uh, we are working our way through the book of Nehemiah, and this morning we're going to find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 5. And before we uh, jump in and read the text, I just want to uh, make sure that you're back on board with what's happening. You're probably familiar with the story of Nehemiah, whether you've been here uh, previously during the first four chapters that, that I've taught through here, or whether you just have an awareness of reading the Bible. But in Nehemiah, we're dealing with the great story, the grand story uh, of uh, the picture of God's redemption. And, and there's, so, there's so many uh, so many background kind of, maybe not background, so there's so many uh, sort of behind the veil kinds of things that we can learn about this story of God sending a man back after the exile of, of the people of Israel back into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And, and, and there's, a, there's a real, a historical, a, a, a literal, a physical uh, necessity to what's happening in the story. So we don't want to pull away and just make spiritual applications of things that are happening for real. Uh, they're really rebuilding a wall which the city of Jerusalem really needs. I read an interesting quote just this week in light of things that are happening in our, in our uh, globally or happening in our world uh, today that uh, said that uh, we, we are, uh, America certainly is, uh, this is not a word for a quote, I don't even know who said it, so this is really bad that I say it this morning, I wasn't planning to, but it just popped in my head here, uh, that we are, we, are, we are poised because of how we are, how polarized we are, and how things are, we're poised to, to be plunged back very quickly to how things were in the Middle Ages, and, and that he made some comment along the lines of, 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 of uh, returning back to having sort of walled-in cities, uh, which was a necessity, and, and much smaller little uh, I don't want to call them kingdoms, but much smaller little uh, fiefdoms, if you know what that word is, uh, that, that sort of exist around just because of how things are. And I, don't, I'm not, I don't say that as, as prophecy, please, at all. I don't, uh, I don't even know if that's going to happen. It just reminded me of this. That there's a real physical need for Jerusalem to survive, to have a wall, to have, have something to, that around it that protects it. We talked about that's what walls do. That uh, keeps what's inside, supposed to be inside, inside, and what's supposed to be outside, outside. But we also particularly talked about the fact that a wall gives identity. It gives definition. It defines where, in this case, Jerusalem starts and stops and where it doesn't. But we know that ultimately there's much more happening behind the scenes than just the physical wall. This is a reforming of the identity of the Jewish people. They've been scattered They've been conquered. They've been taken here and there. They've, some have been remaining, but many have been scattered across the globes, and they're under all kinds of other authorities and religious systems and cultural systems, and they're losing their definition. And may I remind you, it's by God's specific choice that that happens because they were turning away from him. They refused to acknowledge him. They refused to obey him. And he warned them, and he warned them, and he warned them, and he warned them again and again and again. If you don't turn back, this is what I'll do. And then he did it. But every time he warned them and said, this is what I'm going to do, he continued to remind them and say, but I will bring a remnant. I will, there will be a seed that stays there. And again, he's Talking layers upon layers, for we know ultimately that seed is Jesus that he's talking about that he's going to bring. But he is talking also in terms of what he's going to do with them as a nation. And he's bringing them back. And he's reforming the identity of the Jewish people. We are in the middle of the last several messages we read, in the middle of this battle to build the wall. They started doing it, and opposition immediately rose. And it went from verbal kinds of threats to actually threatening physical activity. That's not totally done yet, but there's a little interlude. There's a little interposition of chapter 5 here. And so I want to spend time with that this morning. Let's uh, read now together. We'll finally get to the text here, Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's read the first uh, 13 verses of what we're going to have to cover. It's a pretty big chunk of time, so we better, a big, big chunk of section here of Scripture. We better jump in. Verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and, their and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. 
There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. I, Nehemiah speaks in first person. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Verse 12, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so, just like he shook out the fold of his garment, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Fathers, your word, we say that every Sunday it seems like, but we still mean it. I mean it today. It's the word that has come from you, which means we want you to teach us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would make it clear what uh, is, needs to be learned, make it uh, come out of my mouth, make it go directly into our minds if you need be. Uh, it doesn't matter how you do it, but we want to be taught by your word today through your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break this down into a couple of sections to get a handle on what's going on here. The first part comes right from the first verses. There arose a great outcry from of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Before we get too carried away with the situation, I want you to see, however, that this is not some kind of interruption into what's going on. In other words, this is not like, hey, we're building a wall, we're building a wall, and suddenly there's this, oh, there's this distraction over here, we got to take care of this, and then we can go back and building the wall. I believe the reason that there's this interposition, this reason it's stuck in here is because God wants to show us that it was a necessary part of rebuilding the wall to help us understand that rebuilding the wall was not just about the physical things, not just about bringing this wall back up. It was about recognizing that it does no good, and hear this carefully, it is about recognizing that it does no good to make changes outwardly without changing what's happening inside. Did you hear that? It does no good to make changes outwardly without changing what's happening inside. This is what we're seeing here because what we're going to be faced with today is the fact that they were working hard at building a wall, at reestablishing the identity of the Jewish people. And they're doing that and they're, getting, they're gaining ground. They're getting ahead. They're, they're almost done actually. And yet we find that there's a problem inside, right? There's a problem what's happening inside. And we might be tempted as we make an effort to drag this text over into our lives today, we might be tempted to say, oh, this is about walls and about what we can't do, what we have to keep out and what we have to bring in. And, and, and that we're, we're going to make these, these rules. And by the way, rules are not bad. We're going to make these rules. We don't watch this in our family. We don't do this. We don't go here. We dress like this. We don't dress like that. We, 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 we style our hair like this. I mean, all kinds of things that we could, we could talk about how to do. But the problem is if we do all those things about recognizing that the problem is actually from inside of here, then it doesn't do any good. And God is making it obvious with the Jewish people here. He says, listen, we can rebuild the wall. I can help you build this back up. I can help you have a physical line of separation again. But if something doesn't change inside, then we haven't accomplished anything. If we're about reforming the identity of the Jewish people, let's begin with something that is very obvious to them, We'll talk about this in a little bit. That's very obvious that where they are no longer different from everyone else. They are just like everyone else. So for us today, again, we're going to pull this for us today, right? For us today, we can make ourselves look different. We can 
follow different rules if we want to, but if there's nothing that's changing what's happening in our hearts inside of here, then we are no different than the rest of the world, which means our identity is not in Christ. So what was the problem? A great outcry, a great shriek is what that word is, rose from the people and their wives, and it was against their own Jewish brothers. Here's what they said. We see the uh, ever-increasing, uh, ever-saddening uh, tale told by three different sort of groups of people, although I think there's some overlap between them. Some of them said this. Our sons and daughters, we are many. We have lots of us. And according to what they're saying here, we have no resources to help us get even daily food to live. Lord, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Here's a group of people, according to what it looks like in the text, a group of people that were poor and did not even have the resources to get what they needed to live. And this was a problem for them. Now, that's not, we're not done yet because there's another group that says there were also those who said, hey, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses, so they have resources, but we're mortgaging them because we also have to get grain. There's a famine going on. There's a lack of things around us, and we... Can't, we don't have access to it, or when we, when we get access to it, we have to mortgage what we have to get those things. And then there's the next uh, group of people. There's others still that said, hey, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax. We live in an environment where they have to pay tax to the king far, far away, but they also have to pay some taxes locally, sort of an ever-increasing or ever-decreasing circle of of uh, rulership over them, and these are also poor people, and they have to borrow money just to pay uh, uh, the money for the fields and the vineyards. Now, at this point, you might say, well, that's what a lot of poor people is. Like, that's no different than lots of people. But there's more going on, because remember that their outcry rose not against the king, like the king, the king, and not even against uh, sort of the regional guy, but against their Jewish brothers. There's something else going on. And notice what they boil all that down to in verse 5. They say, here's really the problem. We are just like you are. This is my paraphrase. We are just like you are. We belong to you. We're part of you. And yet somehow, because of what you're doing, you're forcing us to sell our things and even our children into slavery so that we can make ends meet. Now, at this point, I think it's helpful to kind of cheat ahead because we look at the next verses coming and we understand that it's more than just that they were poor and they had all the stuff to pay. It's that even their own Jewish leaders, their own brothers and sisters, if we would use the, the Christian term for that, that were over them in Jerusalem were also asking tithes of them. I know that to be true because we haven't even got there yet. We're going to get there next week because of something Nehemiah says that he did not do while he was governor of that area, while he was ruler of that area. He did not take tithes from the people for his own table. In other words, that was happening. By, by inference, we know that that was happening. And on top of that, we know that there's this, we're going to get this in a little bit here, but there was this whole subject of that they were taking advantage, they, they, were, they were lending money maybe if they had, had to those people, but they were charging them interest and putting them at a severe disadvantage. The real problem here, if I, can, if I can just summarize this for you, the real problem here was that there was people that were in vulnerable positions and their own people, people who were part of their own uh, identified group of people, their own Jewish people, were, instead of helping them, were taking advantage of their vulnerability, were taking advantage of their position. There were people who should have been on their side, and instead they were being, making sure that their own stuff was taken care of, that their own pockets were lined, so to speak. There were leaders, Jewish leaders, who said, it is in my best interest to align myself more with the foreign government that's in control of me than with my own people because I want to make sure that this connection that, that I, I'm taking care of here, instead of saying, I need to take care of the people here. I titled this sermon, and next week's sermon will have the same title, 
uh, probably be in two weeks actually because we have Destiny Rescue next week, but the next sermon that we're getting to, I entitled it Nehemiah's Reforms because Nehemiah is reforming as they're establishing the, the physical identity of the Jewish people. He is also reforming their own spiritual or um, personal identity, their, their invisible identity, if you want to put it that way. This is something we're going to find out this morning that they should have been doing differently, but they began to do just like the rest of the world did. When I see somebody I can take advantage of, if it's to my benefit, I will take advantage of them. That's what was happening. And Nehemiah has an instant, an immediate, and a very uh, direct and harsh response to that. He says, I was very angry when I heard their cry. When I found out about this, I was very angry. Now, to get a little background to help us understand why he was angry, to help us correctly interpret what Nehemiah was after, I think it's good for us to get a little background as to what they should have been doing. So if you will permit me, or if you'll go with me for a little bit, into some Old Testament background knowledge of how things should have worked in this kind of situation. So let's uh, travel first to the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles, again, I hope you do, Deuteronomy chapter 15, turn there with, with me. And uh, read a couple of verses here. God does address what to do when he's establishing the nation of Israel to start with. He does address with them what to do when these situations arise because he knows they're going to arise. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. I'm going to jump in there in verse 7. Chapter 15 is about something called the sabbatical year. Does someone know? I haven't been very interactive this morning, and you know I like to be interactive. So what's the sabbatical year? Anybody want to tell us uh, just real briefly uh, what's the sabbatical year? When, when Deuteronomy 15 talks about the sabbatical year, what's, what's that referring to? Okay, every seven years you're supposed to let the land rest. Okay, do you know of anything else that goes along with the Sabbath year? And I, don't, I didn't do a lot of studying this, so you may know some things I don't. Or, but what else is supposed to happen along with a Sabbath year? Debts were forgiven. We talked briefly about this in our Sunday school class this morning because uh, the land, if anybody had sold land, uh, to, to cover any kind of debt they had that year at the, uh, during that time frame. On the seventh year, that land was supposed to go back to, their original, to the original owner. So, which is, uh, anyway, I won't get into that because that was part of our Sunday school lesson. Let me just read these verses then. Chapter 15, verse, starting in verse 7 now. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake." For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now, you can immediately, if you're paying attention to what, you, what we just read, see some connections back to the text here in Nehemiah. For one, when someone becomes poor, it's very clear because it's stated several times, you should not close your heart to that person. You should seek to meet that need. Now, one of the questions that comes up right away, and what we sometimes think in Nehemiah chapter 5, that Nehemiah is reforming, is that he's upset that they were making loans to them, that they wouldn't just give the people what they need, because that's sometimes what we hear today, right? If someone's in need, then if you're a believer, you should just give to them. Is that what's going on? Is that the situation? Is that what God wanted from them? If there's someone poor among you and they have a need, those of you who have what, what that person needs, you should just give it to them. Is that what I just read? Are you with me? Did you pay attention to what I just read? Is that what I just read? No, it's actually not. We might think that, right? We think, and many times, honestly, we uh, are, are held to that sometimes, that if someone's in need and you have it, you should just give it to them. What did I read? See, that's why you should have your Bible with you and open because you can go back and look now. You can be the star of the class. No, never mind. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, God is, and, 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 and God is, you shall not harden your heart you sh or shut your hand, but you actually, it's up on the screen. You don't even have to open your Bible. It's up on the screen there. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. 
And he says, by the way, don't think about the fact that, hey, you know what? Next year's a Sabbath year, so I'm going to have to forgive this, so I don't want to give him too much. He says, if he has need and you can fulfill that need, you should lend that to him. But it's a loan. I can already tell you that I, maybe this isn't true for you, but for me, as I'm thinking through that this week, I think, you know, we don't often operate that way. Again, we feel convicted that we should just give. We should just, like, if I have it and you need it, then you should just get it. But he doesn't actually say that, right? That's not what God said. And we know why that's true, by the way. We know that that destroys the dignity of the person receiving. We also know that that encourages them to not change anything, right? We also know that that, doesn't, that, that allows them to be in a position where it's called enabling, where they just continue to not do whatever they want to, and you continue to give over what you have. That's not the situation that's being painted here. You should not, however, close your heart up. You should not have uh, unworthy thoughts inside of you. In fact, God says, if you're willing to do this, for this I will bless you. For this I will bless you. By the way, he says, you'll never stop having poor people around, so you'll always be able to practice these principles. You're never going to have a shortage of that. You'll never, doesn't matter how we structure things economically. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter. You're always going to have those people. Now, by the way, let's get, a, let's get a, a, another look at this. Um, uh, let's go to Leviticus chapter 25 this time. Again, this, this, this chapter talks about the Sabbath year. It also talks about the year of Jubilee. So uh, let's just fill that gap in because I'm not going to read about it. What's the year of Jubilee? Okay. So every seven sevens, there is a big reset, an entire year where all kinds of stuff happen. We won't get into that this morning, but there's a big reset where things shift back, think, land goes back, debts are forgiven, all kinds of things happen on the year of Jubilee. Now, by the way, it would be good for us to know that one of the reasons for the length of time that the children of Israel are in exile, who knows how, how God said, maybe I'll just throw that out there too. How did God decide how many years that the uh, people of Israel were gonna be in exile? How did he just pull a number out and be like, ah, let's see, appropriate punishment would be, how did he decide how many years they're going to go from when they're in exile to when he's going to send, make this stuff start happening and send the exiles back and start reforming? Whether you know the exact number of years or not, the answer to that is the number of years that the people of Israel had not been allowing the land to lie fallow on the Sabbath years. So in other words, all the years that they were working, and when they got to the seventh year, they said, eh, I don't want to do that. I'm not sure I'm going to get enough food next year. I don't really like letting go of my stuff. I don't like forgiving that debt. I don't like doing, so I'm just going to pretend it's not the seventh year. I'm just going to keep on going. And it was for 70 years because they had let the land lie that many years where they had not honored the Sabbath. You see, this is, I mean, this is much bigger than just like, hey, we're charging interest on, on our brothers. This is much bigger because it's at the very core of why they're in the position they're in. Because they refused to trust God and do things his way. I didn't read the verses. Maybe I haven't even read the verse at all yet. But uh, God is very clear when he sets this whole thing up. He says, by the way, I will give you enough the sixth year to carry you over until the harvest time of the eighth year. Catch that. I will give you enough the sixth year to carry you over until the harvest time of the eighth year because that's how long you'll have to go before you will reap anything from your fields. That's called trusting in God. That's called not worrying about the fact that I'm going to go a year plus before I can raise any more food for my family or for in my uh, crops in my fields. Let me, I, I was going to read here, Leviticus chapter 25. This is, the study's not on, on the Sabbath and the year of Jubilee, so I don't want to get carried away with that. Leviticus chapter 25, let's go down to uh, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, which tells you how they were supposed to treat not only their own people, but strangers and sojourners. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money in interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of his fathers. 
He goes on to talk about some reasons why, but I'm going to stop there. Uh, I just want to clarify, again, for the part of the text this morning, I want to clarify that when Nehemiah had a reaction very strongly against this, it's based on the premise of those two passages, maybe some other things too, but that, that he read, uh, that he knew about what they were supposed to be doing and they were no longer doing. They were behaving like the rest of the world does. Hey, if you're in need and I have opportunity, I can loan you money, but you know what? It's not fair of you to take my money or to take what I have and I don't get anything from it, so I'm gonna make some money at your expense. And God said, I don't want you to operate that way. The people who are called by my name, this is in the book of uh, the Old Testament, people who are called by my name won't do that to each other. Yes, you'll lend money. They're gonna pay you back as much as they can. Now, if they don't get there before the year of Jubilee or the Sabbath, then that, that's a different issue. But they're, they're going to pay you back, but you won't take advantage of it by making money off of them. You won't take advantage of it by charging a little interest on top of it. And Nehemiah, recognizing the precarious situation they were in, the poor people scattered around, and the reforming of the identity of the Hebrew people, he says, listen, this is one of the things that we should not be doing. In fact, he makes it clear why he has a big issue with it in one of the lines he says. This is verse 8 from back in Nehemiah chapter 5. Listen, he says, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers. Let me, let me, let me translate that. He said, we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to get all of our Jewish people out of those kind of relationships where they're in bondage because of their need. We're trying to get everybody out of that situation. And you are putting them in that situation. This shouldn't be like this. That's not how it should be. You should not take advantage of your position, for there were some Jews who had places of authority still. You should not take advantage of your position to those, against those who are vulnerable, against those who are less fortunate, against those who are in different places than you are. Now, this reminded me of a verse I've dug up in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, because it's what God saw happening in Israel all the time. It's what led to the exile it's what Nehemiah is now trying to reshape and say, this is not how we should be. But it struck me because I thought, this, unfortunately, is a picture that we see sometimes in our world. But let me be a little more direct than that because, honestly, I'm not preaching to the world this morning. I'm preaching to the church. And sometimes we see the same thing happen inside our own walls, so to speak. Isaiah 5-7 says this, And he looked for justice... I should just read the whole thing because it makes it make a little more sense. Sorry about that. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That's how we know who he's talking about. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, I'm a little sucker for being a little nerdy, and so the, so the, the, the problem is, uh, this is good, but it's even better when you read it in the original Hebrew, because it's poetic. The emphasis comes out much more clearly. Let me show you what I mean. He says, behold, God, what he looked for when he planted Israel, when he tended that, that, that vineyard, when he said, here's my people that bring about my identity, I'm looking for mishpat, which means justice. I'm looking for justice to reign. But behold, in other words, but what I'm finding is mispah, which is violence or bloodshed or oppression. God says, I was looking for justice from the people that I was raising, from the people that took on my identity, but instead I found oppression. I found the opposite. He said, look, I was looking when I planted them, I was looking for tzedakah, which is righteousness, to be right with me. But behold, what I found instead is which is a cry or a shriek. By the way, the very same word used in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, that a great cry arose from among the people. Have you, have you noticed that theme that actually showed up back in Deuteronomy as well? That when you take advantage of the poor, when you use your position and abuse it to take advantage of those who are less fortunate or are vulnerable towards you, when you do those things, there's a great cry that goes up to God. And God is saying, I was looking for justice, but I found oppression. I was looking for righteousness, but instead all I'm hearing is a cry because, because of that oppression, because of that injustice, because of the poor, the disadvantaged being taken advantage of. I made the comment, and I will stand by the comment, and I'd be open to having any conversation about that, that we 
may not see ourselves fitting in with the people of Israel in some of those things. But within the church of Jesus Christ, unfortunately, there remains, within the family of God, within our own circles, there remains far too much of God looking for justice and he finds oppression. Of God looking for righteousness and instead he's hearing a, a great shriek because of those taken advantage of. I'm going to save a bit of that because I want to get back to Nehemiah because Nehemiah says he took counsel with himself. It's a very interesting phrase, but it meant, means that he checked his heart. He checked his motives. He made sure that he was not being unrighteous when he did this because he was angry. He was infuriated by what he was hearing, but he checked himself. He checked his heart, and then he called a great assembly with these leaders and with all the people, and he said, we're going to have it out. Now, by the way, that's a pretty bold move, right? That's like when I think one of you did something wrong and, and really took advantage of your neighbor and I call you up front on a Sunday morning and say, we're going to deal with this and we're going to talk about it and now all these people are going to hear it. It's what uh, Paul did with Peter in Galatians. When Peter shrunk back from those who uh, were of the uncircumcised party because those of the circumcision showed up, he shrunk back and Paul said, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. And he called Peter out in front of everybody else and said, no, no, you're not right. You're wrong. This is what Nehemiah does. He says, I am fed up with this. If we're going to build a wall and we're going to reestablish the identity of the Hebrew people, then we have got to do it in more than just physical ways. And this is one of those ways and it's going to stop. And he demonstrates what I've been uh, highlighting throughout the, the way. He demonstrates another characteristic of a godly leader. And this one can be tough. I've been in leadership and I'm not very good at this very often. A godly leader is bold in taking action when the situation requires it. Now, notice it's when the situation requires it. It doesn't just mean that uh, boldness, sometimes we think being bold means we, we uh, crawl over, all over people every time we see them doing something wrong or we're just really loud about what we have to say. That's not what boldness is. But when it's required, he is very bold. He looks at the leaders. He's going to address the priest in a little bit. He's looking at those people who are in charge and he says, I'm going to hold an assembly and I'm going to invite all the poor people that you've been taking advantage of and we're going to have it out in front of them. I'm going to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. I don't know about you, but in that situation, my knees would have been rather shaky. I would have dreaded that moment when I have to stand up in front of all the important people who can call back up the, go up the chain of command on behalf of the poor people who have no out, who have no, they, they, they have no standing, they have no leverage, so to speak, and to say, what you're doing is not right. But that is exactly what he does. He says, the thing you're doing is not good. And he goes back to the theme that we've actually already heard from this morning. We talked about it in Sunday school. We heard from it up here. And we're going to talk about it again right now. The thing you're not doing is good. And the reason I can tell you that things should change is because you ought to walk in the fear of God more than what's happening. You ought to be more aware of how displeased God is with what you're doing. You ought to pay more attention to how God feels about what you're doing than what other people feel like or what you want. Because quite frankly, that's usually where it's at, right? We always do want to please other people. We always are influenced by what other people say. But the reality is even that is a selfish focus on ourselves because we want people to think good of us. We want people to be happy with us. We don't want us to get any kind of sideways glances or negative words or be called weird or be whatever. It's still a selfish thing. So in the end, we ought to be more afraid of what God thinks about something than what we want out of something. That's where it comes down to, right? And he looks at them, and I look at you this morning, and because you know this verse has to apply to us, right? I, whether you agree with it or not, this verse does apply to us. Ought we not to walk more in the fear of God so that we can prevent the taunts of those people who are enemies? This is the precise position that the church of America finds itself in. Not walking in the fear of God and being despised by the world around us. We have made the mistake of thinking that we will get rid of that despising and that scorning by appeasing them, by joining them, by finding where we have things that we can talk together about, not realizing that it's the opposite that we should be doing. 
that we ought to be far more concerned about what God has to say, about what God is going to do, about what his opinion is, about what, what he asks of us. I suggest to you, by the way, it is a completely misguided notion to start with that we will get rid of the despising and the scorning of the world because Jesus, I believe it was him that said that the world hates me and if you follow me, then he will also hate you. So if our goal is to get rid of the scorn of the world off of us, then we, uh, I, we're not Christians. <laughs> we're not following what the Bible teaches. We're, we're not, we, we've missed the aim of what it means to follow Christ. Furthermore, he follows up. I need to finish, find my way to the end of this because there's some good stuff coming still, stuff that not just focus back on, on Jewish history. He follows it up by saying, we ought to walk in the fear of God. Here's, I'm gonna tell you what to do. We are going to let us abandon. We're gonna let go. We're gonna free ourselves from this exacting of interest and we are gonna return to them this day. And notice he doesn't just say all the interest that you've collected. He actually says everything. Again, he is aware of the fact that they are in their punishment because they have not followed the rules that God has laid out for the Sabbath and the year of Jubilee. Which means he doesn't just say, hey, by the way, we shouldn't charge interest to each other, guys. So why don't you return the interest that you've, that you've, that you've taken from them? He says, no, 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 let's, 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 let's not stop there. Why don't you return everything to them? Why don't you give them everything back? Forget the whole thing. Give them all their land, all their vineyards, all their crops, all their money. Give them all back. Oh, all, also, by the way, all the stuff that you have put on top of, all the interest that you've exacted. Give it all back. I've told you this many times, by the way. I am sometimes blown away by the understated things of Scripture. Because I'm in my, I told you, I have shaking knees. I have this huge assembly of people. I have the leaders over here and all the poor people over here. And I'm the guy that's trying to get all this work out. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing this big, big tense scene. And guess what it says? What do they do? <laughs> they don't say anything. Except for the very end, they say, We'll do it. We'll restore these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. Don't you love when God is involved in things, making what seems to be impossible, possible? We'll do it. I don't know. I obviously don't know. Maybe someday we'll have the privilege of talking to Nehemiah and asking about this, this day and this situation. But if it would have been me in that place of Nehemiah, I'm pretty sure I would have, like inside, maybe not visibly very much, but I'd have been like, are you kidding me, God? Really? Like, that's it? But Nehemiah doesn't stop, right? Because he calls the priests out, and this is a very important step because they are the spiritual leaders, and they are the ones who will stand as judges if any case arises. They're the ones that are going to decide between a case between a poor person and a person. If there's ever any outcry that says, hey, they're not being fair to me or they did this and they shouldn't. They're the ones that are going to stand there. And he looks at them and he says, you likewise, you promised that this is how it's going to be from now on. And they do. By the way, when they're doing these kinds of things, they're sitting down, not standing. I was standing, but they're sitting down because as, they, as he does that, he stands up and he, you know, they're, they're wearing a... Uh, chiton, well, that's the Greek word for it, but they're wearing a, a, I can't think of an English word for it, a big long garment, and you know what, they, what people wore like that, and he has the, the laugh thing there, which is where they put things, and he, he adds a visual, he's good at doing object lessons, he adds a visual to what he's saying. Here's what he does, he stands up and shakes that thing out, and he says, as I'm shaking this out, so may God shake out every one of you from your house and your labor, meaning may, what, may your house become empty and the work you do, may, not, may it not provide for you if you're not going to honor this. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. It's kind of the opposite of a blessing, right? It's kind of a, you guys said it, now may God hold you to it. And this is what's going to happen if you don't. You understand that he is taking care of what's, invisible, what's behind that wall, what's, what's inside here. He's saying, your hearts cannot long for gain, for taking advantage of those less fortunate, for despising the poor. God has a heart for the poor and the needy. He's a father to the fatherless. He places the fatherless in homes. He has a heart for them. 
I can tell you it is easy as middle-class American Christians, it is easy for us to be pretty jaded about the poor. And it's not all misplaced, by the way, at least the thoughts we have. But I, it's for me, and I don't know where you're at on this kind of stuff, and I don't know that I'm at the end. I don't know if I have any, drawn any conclusions or have any sort of statements about that. But for me, it appears to me to be a scenario where I think we are not always in step with the heart of God. It's far too easy for us to dismiss the disadvantaged and the poor. It's far too easy for us to look down upon them. It's far too easy to look much more out for our wants than their needs. It's far too easy for us to stay in our safe little environments where we have everything we need, and if I don't step outside of that, I won't be aware of it and I won't have to feel bad about it. In this scene, the end of chapter 5, verse 13, all the assembly, everyone there, said amen. Which means, of course, may it be so. May the Lord make it so. And they praised the Lord. Interesting. Interesting how correction and return to what God asks of you brought about praise. I would suggest to you that's always what happens. We don't have time to get into that this morning. I've already taken up more than my share of time. And the assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord. And I want to ask you this morning, as we make just a few points of application, I want to ask you this morning, is that our response when we are confronted with something that we have not done as we should, having the identity of Christ in us? When we become aware of something that is not lining up with our identity as it should be, do we say amen, or do we dig in? Do we defend ourselves? Do we make excuses? Do we justify? Or do we just harden our heart and say, well, I, don't, I can't do that? We see this exact response. If we're going to frame it in the discussion of money, we see this exact response in the New Testament. When a young man comes to Jesus and asks how he can find the way to eternal life, and Jesus tells him all the things, and he says, I've done all these things. And then Jesus looks at him, a man of, of great wealth, and he looks at him and says, okay, I want you to go home and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And what does the man do? I'll tell you what he does. Matthew 19, 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There's the one side of our potential response when we understand that something in us does not match up with the identity we should have. That needs to be reformed. Not just the outside exercise, but what's happening in here. That an attitude I have, or my way of thinking, or the, the things I'm doing don't match up. There's the one side. The other side we see in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus runs into this guy named Zacchaeus, right? You know the story of Zacchaeus. And he invites him home. And they're having this banquet with all of Zacchaeus' friends. Sinners all just like every one of them. But, but, but obvious sinners to, to everyone around them. They didn't like what he was doing. But Zacchaeus in that dinner stands up and he says this. Behold, Lord, I, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If we're going to keep this discussion, which I don't think we should, but if we're going to keep this discussion on financial things only, there's the two responses we can have. We can say, God, that's too much. I'm not willing to part with it. And again, we had an excellent Sunday school lesson this morning that fit in with that. I hope you were here. If not, come next Sunday for Sunday school. Or we can say, God, it's not mine anyway. And if I've done anything to anybody, I'll, I'll pay back fourfold. I'll make sure it's right. I'll make sure that no one can ever look at me and say, you... We're tight with what God gave you. But friends, as you well are aware of, this discussion is not just restricted to things of money. Although that's where we were at in Nehemiah chapter 5, and although that's the two examples I gave you, this extends far more than that, for I believe most times when I told you that even within the church and even within our own culture, people, we often are, fall prey to what God was looking for in Isaiah 5, 7. He looked for justice and he finds oppression. Look for righteousness and he finds, all he hears is a cry. More times than not, that is not in money. But it's in some other way where we hold our position and take advantage of the, those that are vulnerable. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit can make application for you. But there are plenty of times when people just can't seem to get it right. They just struggle with following the Lord. And there are plenty of us who have been so right in all of our lives so long. 
and we just hold an air of superiority over them. Like we get it right and you can't ever quite get yourself scrubbed up before God. That's what these verses are talking about. That's the identity that God does not line up with the heart of Christ. There are plenty of times when we speak scornfully of each other. Brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and we speak critically or scornfully or negatively about each other. That's what this text is about. I mean, Nehemiah is talking about money, but that's what the heart of what he's talking about. The heart has to change that those that we think are far below us and we're somewhere up here that we use that as some kind of leverage. When God is looking for justice, he finds oppression. Where God is looking for righteousness, he hears a cry of the disadvantaged because someone who is their brother or sister is lording it over them, is taking full advantage of their position. This is a tough verse for me as a pastor. I have to, I have to be honest with you. One of the most difficult things in, um, yeah, one of the most difficult things in being the leader of a church, a pastor of a church, is the position of untouchability it puts you in. It's not true, by the way, that I'm untouchable. But many times, there's, an, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of that. There's a sense of, you, you can't, you can't accuse or that he doesn't do anything wrong. or that he has, And you guys don't think that about me. I hope not. But there's, there's, there's a sense of being in that place. And it is so easy to slide myself into allowing myself to think that way. I've spent more than a decade now preaching. Surely I know more about what the Bible says than anybody else, right? I study it day in and day out. I'm sure you don't know it that well. I'm sure that if you think something different about it by what it says than me, you just haven't looked at it enough because I certainly have the answer. You understand what I'm trying to say. This is not what I want, by the way. I'm giving you, choosing to give you an example from my own life so that you hopefully can apply it to yours of how it's easy for us to be in, to use our position or status or place we're at or, or whatever we have and to use it in a way that is unfair towards those who are who are disadvantaged. I don't want that to be true, and I don't think you want that to be true. It's part of the reformation, the reforming, the redefinition, the reestablishing of the identity of the church of Jesus Christ, of the people of Jesus Christ, of the family of Jesus Christ, of the person of Jesus Christ. It's what this entire city of Nehemiah is about. It's not just about building walls, keeping bad stuff out and good stuff in. It's about recognizing that unless our hearts change, the wall won't do a bit of good. Jesus said those words, right? He said, it's not the outside that defiles you. It's the inside. It's the inside. I was going to put this reference up there just in reference to how we interact with all people of, of the faith. Paul wrote to the Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But I want to close with this verse, because in the end, when you boil it all down in the end, the uh, formula, there's not really a formula, I hope you understand it, but the formula for living right as the identity of, of the people of God doesn't change, hasn't changed from back then or to now. And we find this formula hidden away in the book of Acts as the church is growing, as the church is, is uh, multiplying. This is a verse that our quizzers should be well familiar with. So those of you quizzing, pay attention. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's a memory verse for you. So if I would start to say, quote Acts 9.31 to say, so the church throughout all Judea, I'm guessing I have some kids that could finish that without looking back there. Anybody want to take a stab at it? So the church throughout all Judea. Nathan, go ahead. Or Ryan, go ahead. Did he get it right? Very good job, young man. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, I think he had those two backwards, but it didn't really matter, uh, had peace and was being built up. And here's the key where I want to bring this verse out. Because they were walking in the fear of the Lord 
and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see how that works together? The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, the church multiplied. The formula, again in quotes, that God has given to us to be people of the church is this, to walk in the fear of the Lord. And when that happens, then we can experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit, how he reminds us of what God has done for us. By the way, I would tell you that if you're trying to find the comfort of the Holy Spirit without walking in the fear of the Lord, you will not be very successful. Because until you have an understanding of who you are and what you deserve before Christ, you will not be comforted by the Holy Spirit at what God has given to you through the, the salvation of Jesus Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit himself. So walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that is how it's meant to be. Let's pray. Again, thanks for your patience with us this morning. So you went a bit over time. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for... Uh, the way that it speaks to us and reaches back through the years of time, the way that we can read about things that are happening so many years ago in a physical sense, and yet those verses, those words off that page get, get pulled over by the Holy Spirit into our lives today and help us to see, oh, they help us to see maybe some good things, but they also help us to see places where we haven't walked very faithfully with you. And Lord, this morning, may our hearts as individuals, as families, as a church body. May our hearts be like the people that we read about today in Nehemiah, that when you may have revealed something to us that has said this is not quite how it should be in your life, whatever that may be, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how in between, no matter how much we think it has significance or not, may we say yes, amen. May we abandon that. May we turn away from that. May we restore to the best of our ability anything that may need to be restored with anyone else. And may we say yes, amen. More than anything, Father, I pray this week that for those who say yes, amen this morning, for those whose hearts are ready and obedient and want to be right with you, that don't want to hear, have, have the outcry come, but they want righteousness. They don't want to have oppression come out of their lives, but they want justice. For those that are in that place that want to be uh, hidden, in the identity, hidden in Christ with the identity of Christ, for those, I pray, God, that this week we may walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We believe that's what you've given to us to be found faithful to you. So we want to be obedient. Yes and amen. Thank you, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.